Okay, well, we're going to um, spend several weeks on Daniel, and I think we'll get into all of the dreams and the prophecy uh, here probably in the next two Bible studies. But there's just some, some good stuff here that we need to kind of get the story, I think, first. So we'll talk about Daniel. Now, in Jewish tradition, this verse in Isaiah, which is written about 100 years before Daniel, uh, was a prediction for Daniel. So whether we believe that to be true or not, I just find it interesting that Isaiah told King Hezekiah, <clears throat> the Lord Almighty says that a time is coming when everything in your palace, everything that your ancestors have stored up to this day will be carried off to Babylonia. Whereas that's what we've been doing this whole Bible study this year with Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It's the story of the Babylonian captivity. Nothing will be left. Some of your own direct descendants will be taken away and made eunuchs to serve in the palace of the king of Babylonia. Okay, and Daniel and his three friends uh, were eunuchs in the palace. So it's thought that uh, perhaps this is a reference to them. Again, about 100 years before Daniel. So if we come back to our chart here, okay, we've, we've talked about the three invasions and that Daniel here was taken out in the uh, first invasion. And uh, I, we're talking about Daniel last just because he's kind of our best segue into what happens after the Babylonian captivity with the people returning and uh, rebuilding the temple again in Jerusalem. <clears throat> okay, so we'll just read the opening um, here of Daniel. In the third year that Jehoiakim was king of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylonia attacked Jerusalem and surrounded the city. The Lord let him capture King Jehoiakim and seize some of the temple treasures. And I just underlined this again. I think we had a whole talk on this, but you know the, the subject of God's wrath in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It's God will do it. God will pour out his wrath uh, on the people. And we you know, mentioned the dozens of verses where God's wrath is associated with his allowing his people to be handed over, abandoned, forsaken. And so again, what really happened here is he allowed. Okay, now we still have to grapple. Why did he allow? Okay, but that we, we associate that with the subject of God's wrath. Well, anyway, he took some of the prisoners back with him to the temple of his gods in Babylon and put the captured treasures in the temple storerooms. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief official, to select from among the Israelite exiles some young men of the royal family and of the noble families. They had to be handsome, intelligent, well-trained, quick to learn, and free from physical defects so that they would be qualified to serve in the royal court. Ashpenaz was to teach them to read and to write the Babylonian language. The king also gave orders that every day they were to be given the same food and wine as the members of the royal court. After three years of training, they were to appear before the king. Among those chosen were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, all of whom were from the tribe of Judah. And so these are their Hebrew names, okay, which were, of course, changed when they were taken into captivity. And I find the change interesting in terms of the meanings of names. Daniel means God is my judge. His name was changed to Belteshazzar, which means Bel, protect the king. All of these have a new implication that is with regards to the, the gods of Babylon. Hananiah means God has been gracious, and Shadrach means I am very fearful, and the implication is of God. Mishael, it's not entirely clear, it's something like who is what God is, a question is changed to Meshach, which means I am of little account. 
And Azariah, the Lord has helped, is changed to Abednego, servant of the Shining One, and probably that refers to uh, Nebo. Okay, so their names were changed, and they were to be um, assimilated into Babylonian um, culture. <clears throat> okay, and that's really the point here of, of the first story, the, this uh, assimilation here. Daniel made up his mind not to let himself become ritually unclean by eating the food and drinking the wine of the royal court. So we asked Ashpenaz to help him, and God made Ashpenaz sympathetic to Daniel. Ashpenaz, however, was afraid of the king, so he said to Daniel, The king has decided what you are to eat and drink, and if you don't look as fit as the other young men, he may kill me. So Daniel went to the guard, whom Ashpenaz had placed in charge of him, and his three friends. Test us for ten days, he said. Give us vegetables to eat. And even though this is translated vegetables here, this can mean more than um, just veggies. Okay, but uh, it, it wasn't the, the meat and the wine. Give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare us with the young men who are eating the food of the royal court and base your decision on how we look. He agreed to let them try it for 10 days. When the time was up, they looked healthier and stronger than all those who had been eating the royal food. So from then on, the guard let them continue to eat vegetables instead of what the king provided. And God gave the four young men knowledge and skill and literature and philosophy. In addition, he gave Daniel skill in interpreting visions and dreams. And at the end of the three years set by the king, Ashpenaz took all the young men to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them all, and Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah impressed him more than any of the others. So they became members of the king's court. No matter what question the king asked or what problem he raised, these four knew ten times more than any fortune teller or magician in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained at the royal court until Cyrus, the emperor of Persia, conquered Babylonia. Okay, now, um, how I've usually heard this story interpreted is this is primarily a, a diet issue. Okay, and this is, uh, you know, providing counsel on this food being healthier than another type of food and drink. Okay, and I think we could, we could make that application, but I would just say I, that I don't think that's the primary issue here. This is um, an issue of worship, really, because, um, and, and I left out all the verses on this, but the gods in the Old Testament, they always get, uh, they're not vegetarians, okay? They get meat, they get wine, okay? And so, uh, really, this was a, a choice here, I think, for, for Daniel, not wanting to become ritually unclean, um, eating and drinking, um, in a sense, would mean uh, giving loyalty um, to the gods that that was offered to. Okay, so his, his choice not to eat and drink was, had more to do with a statement against the gods. Okay, now, um, so veggies are great. Okay, nothing bad to say here about vegetables and, and certainly you know, some dietary implications. But I think the more important one here uh, has to do with uh, worship. And uh, Paul here would talk about the same subject in 1 Corinthians 8. And kind of what I want to consider here is Daniel did not eat to, I think, make a point, to make a statement. Okay, now Paul would seem to give some, some different advice on this subject. Okay, so we're just gonna kind of compare and contrast and see how we can put this together. So the subject, again, is in 1 Corinthians, in the church in Corinth, is eating food that's been offered to idols. So Paul would say, so then about eating the food offered to idols. We know that an idol stands for something that does not really exist. Okay, that's a wonderful statement here. It stands for something that does not really exist. There's no God behind it. We know that there is only one God, 
even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and even though there are many of these gods and lords, yet there is for us only one God, the Father, who is the creator of all things, and for whom we live, and there is only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this truth. Some people have been so used to idols that to this day, when they eat such food, they still think of it as food that belongs to an idol. Their conscience is weak, and they feel they are defiled by the food. Food, however, will not improve our relation with God. We shall not lose anything if we do not eat, nor shall we gain anything if we do eat. It would seem to suggest, uh, you know what, there's no God behind that, so let's uh, not be so concerned about that. But he would go on, be careful, however, not to let your freedom of action make those who are weak in the faith fall into sin. Suppose a person whose conscience is weak in this matter sees you, who have so-called knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol. Will not this encourage him to eat food offered to idols? And so this weak person, your brother for whom Christ died, will perish because of your knowledge. And in this way, you will be sinning against Christ by sinning against other Christians and wounding their weak conscience. So what you're doing, it's, it's not intrinsically bad and harmful to you, but because of the effect it has on others, uh, well, you shouldn't do that. So then, if food makes a believer sin, I will never eat meat again, so as not to make a believer fall into sin. Okay, and finally, the last section here. None of you should be looking out for your own interests, but for the interests of others. And notice, you are free to eat anything sold in the meat market, because he just said there's no God behind it. It's not harmful. Okay, you can eat it without asking any questions. Notice, because of your conscience. For as the scripture says, the earth and everything in it belong to the Lord. But if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you decide to go, eat what is set before you without asking any questions because of your conscience. Okay, so an unbeliever invites you in, you know that food was offered, uh, perhaps, well, you know, go ahead and eat because of your conscience. But if someone tells you this food was offered to idols, then do not eat that food for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake. That is not your own conscience, but the other person's conscience. Well, then someone asks, why should my freedom to act be limited by another person's conscience? Is that a good question? Why should I limit myself just because it uh, perhaps affects those around me? If I thank God for my food, why should anyone criticize me about food for which I give thanks? Well, here's the answer. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for God's glory. Live in such a way as to cause no trouble, either to Jews or Gentiles or to the church of God. Just do as I do. I try to please everyone in all that I do, not thinking of my own good, but of the good of all so that they might be saved. Okay, so it, it's a little bit um, here. It's, it's a different time and circumstance. So for Daniel, it was a very radical, I mean, he could have lost his life over this, okay, to make a decision like that, but it was a, a strong statement in a, in a foreign you know, culture with other gods, um, that it was the right thing in that circumstance not to eat, to really make a statement. Okay, so Paul here would say, you know what, almost would seem to imply those gods aren't real, and just eat, it doesn't matter, but if it would hurt someone else, if it would be harmful to, to them, um, then don't eat. And I just, I like here even that he would say, you know what, I'm willing to limit my freedom if it would hurt someone else. And maybe this doesn't apply here uh, directly, but I thought of this uh, the other day, um, actually this is at least a couple of years ago, uh, there's a, a bagel place in Redlands we like to go to. 
And um, anyway, they take cash only. And um, so uh, anyway, I went there one morning. We were kind of running late and got a dozen bagels and had no money. And I remember that right next door, uh, there is a liquor store that has an ATM. And um, you know, we were late, so I ran out, went to the liquor store, thought about it a couple times, you know, because there are a number of you running around Redlands and you know, worried about that a little bit, <laughs> but uh, came out with some cash, and sure enough, there's a, I still remember, a medical student in a red pickup, you know, hi, Dr. Cole, and walking out of a liquor store at eight in the morning, I thought it didn't look real good. But um, anyway, maybe we would do things, you know, in our life that um, limit our freedom, and I haven't been in there since, so we always drive to the ATM but uh, uh, limit our freedom in some circumstances if it would be offensive um, to others, even though uh, we know that there's no problem. And I think the other point here to make is, and, and we've talked about this several times, that the Bible really cannot be read as a book where we're, we're coming up with a list. Okay, Daniel says do this. Uh, now we go move forward to Paul. There's another thing, and we accumulate a long list of do's and don'ts. Okay. Uh, because what we see in the Bible is, you know, God, in, God meeting people in different times and cultures, okay? And so really it is the principles that are important, and the principles may lead us to do different things in different times and cultures, okay? And I think we're thankful for that, you know? We're not stoning Sabbath breakers and, and doing all kinds of things that uh, were advocated in, in uh, a very, very different time and culture. Okay, so we need to see what are the principles, and we need to understand how we work that out in our life today. So the Bible is an, or I would put it together, an inspired book that instill, instills principles of living. Okay, and uh, how do we live that out in the 21st century? Okay, that's what we should be uh, grappling with, but it might look different than it did even um, several hundred years ago. In fact, I think it should. All right, so uh, we read on here to Daniel 2. In the second year that Nebuchadnezzar was king, he had a dream. It worried him so much that he couldn't sleep. So he sent for his fortune tellers, magicians, sorcerers, and wizards to come and explain the dream to him. When they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I'm worried about a dream I've had. I want to know what it means. They answered the king in Aramaic. And it's interesting, Daniel goes back and forth from Hebrew and Aramaic. May your majesty live forever. Tell us your dream and we will explain it to you. The king said to them, I've made up my mind that you must tell me the dream and then tell me what it means. That's smart, isn't it? If they're really magicians, um, they should also be able to tell him what it was that he dreamed. If you can't, I'll have you torn limb from limb and make your houses a pile of ruins. And we see Nebuchadnezzar doing this over and over again. Um, you know, when Daniel finally comes through and interprets the dreams, you know, if you don't worship Daniel's God, I'll tear you limb from limb. So it's always very dramatic here. Now, we have to, here's a verse. I just remember the first time I read this. It, it really stood out. Notice the reply of the magicians. What your majesty is asking for is so difficult that no one can do it for you except the gods. Okay, now what do we know about the gods? They do not live among human beings. I just find that remarkable. The gods, as we've talked about in Old Testament, they're always violent. They always need to be appeased. They always need a lot of flowing blood. They're always angry. They need child sacrifice, okay? Inconceivable. You know, you, you would describe in this time, oh, you wanna know what God is like? And then you tell them the story of Jesus. I mean, 
that's um, you know just almost too hard to comprehend because the gods do not you know condescend to live among human beings. I think we we have just a, an incredible advantage as Christians. I mean, don't we highlight that the one who came was God in human form? Okay, that we claim that's it. You want to know what God is like? He was here. He lived among us. We walked with him. We listened to him. We've got four books that tell his story from, from every angle. Okay, that's a, really a, a radical picture of God. And again, not during this time. Can't imagine that God would live among human beings. Well, the king said to Daniel, who was also called Belshazzar, can you tell me what I dreamed and what it means? And Daniel replied, your majesty, there is no wizard, magician, fortune teller, or astrologer who can tell you that. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has informed your majesty what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you the dream, the vision you had while you were asleep, while your majesty was sleeping. You dreamed about the future, and God who reveals mysteries showed you what is going to happen. Okay, and this is kind of where we're going to get off. Uh, we're going to talk about the dreams and, and what they mean and all of that uh, later on. But the emphasis here is things that will happen in the future. You dreamed about the future. And the reason I, I underline this is because, um, you know, the, one of the Bibles that I use has a little footnote here about when Daniel was written. And it suggests the repeated allusions to the desecration of Jerusalem suggest the time of persecution, perhaps 175, 164 BC. Okay, now I just said they came out, and Daniel came out around 600 BC. Okay, and so this is uh, frequently, you know, there's debate about when Daniel was written, but uh, what would this mean? Or why, why would there be motivation to put the authorship of Daniel not at all in the time when it happened, but hundreds and hundreds of years later? And, and I think the motivation is, well, let's just give you one example. One little glimpse, interpretation of the dream about the ram that had two horns. And we're even, it's, uh, it's interpreted for us here in Daniel. They represent the kingdom of Media and Persia. And the goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the prominent horn between his eyes is the first king. I mean, who's the first king of Greece? Alexander the Great. So the, the problem here is, I think it's not... Um, you know, wanting to accept or consider the possibility that something could have been written that actually did um, predict the future. Okay, so it must have been written after the fact, and so we have these things, uh, little details filled in here later. All right, so that's kind of the issue. And you know, it's just a, a small point of evidence if we're looking for evidence, you know, is the Bible legitimate? Um, I think uh, these are important issues to, to grapple with, and uh, just a few things to, I think, make a little bit of a case that this actually was written during the time of the Babylonian captivity. First of all, we have all these specific names, dates, and details. This is part of what um, makes the, uh, the New Testament so credible, the Gospels. So many specific details. Uh, things like, you know, in the first year that Belshazzar was king of Babylonia, I had a dream. In the third year, I had a second dream. Okay, it, and to my mind, makes it kind of manipulative if we have someone you know, just coming on hundreds of years later and, and filling in all of these details. Uh, here in Daniel 9, Darius the Mede, who was the son of Xerxes, and we've got details there, ruled the kingdoms of Babylonia. In the first year of his reign, I was studying the sacred books and thinking about the 70 years that Jerusalem would be in ruins. Now, where'd he get that? Well, according to what the Lord had told the prophet Jeremiah, 
Jeremiah and Daniel were contemporaries. Okay, so we have Daniel here thinking about the 70 years, just as Jeremiah is writing about the 70 years. Okay, so we have kind of almost seems like a little uh, uh, correspondence here. Jeremiah and Daniel, they're, they're thinking about the same things during the same time. Okay, and so here it is in Jeremiah. We didn't read this, but Jeremiah said, when Babylonians 70 years are over, I will show my concern for you and keep my promise to bring you back home. So this was a lot of hope here for Daniel. Okay, that it would be 70 years. And so sure enough, we, um, you know, they came out in, in around uh, 606 BC, the first captivity. And then uh, we, we come to, uh, actually in Daniel 1, it just tells that Daniel remained in the royal court until Cyrus, the emperor of Persia, conquered Babylonia. And that was in 538 BC. And if we use inclusive reckoning of time, this works out to be um, 70 years. Okay, so some of the specific details I think are helpful. Remember, Ezekiel was also a contemporary of Jeremiah and Daniel. And so we have Ezekiel even mentioning, this was in uh, chapter 28. We talked about the king of Tyre last time. Son of man, tell the ruler of Tyre, this is what the Almighty says. And it reads on, you think you are wiser than Daniel and that no secret can be hidden from you. Um, you know, again, in my mind, if, if it would take a lot of work to fill in all of these details a long time after the fact to make, make things all line up for an authorship at that time. And then, of course, we have uh, Jesus saying, you will see the awful, awful horror of which the prophet Daniel spoke. Would seem to uh, legitimize here Daniel as a real person and a real story uh, writing in this time. And the last point here, and I'm not qualified to talk about this because I'm not a Hebrew or an Aramaic um, scholar, okay, but Daniel goes back and forth between Hebrew and Aramaic. And I understand that one good argument we can make for it being written during that time is that the language, the Aramaic, is consistent with the Aramaic that was used in that time. You know, when you evaluate language, it changes over time. So I think even from a textual analysis, we could make a point for an authorship uh, back in that time. So this is a point in my mind when we, when we talk about these nations being mentioned. Greece, you know, not even on the radar screen as a, as a kingdom coming into power, that, um, you know, I, I think I find this uh, useful. So we will not talk about uh, the idol, but I want to talk a little bit about the person of Daniel, because I think um, the, the character of Daniel that comes out in this book, I mean, we haven't had a lot of good things to say about some of the, um, well, we have had good things to say, I hope, but we've had some bad things to say about even some of the heroes in the Bible. Uh, David, remember we went through all the escapades of David, who was a man after God's own heart, but did some horrible things. And Solomon, who engaged in child sacrifice. And there are very few people outside of Jesus, of course, where we don't find anything bad about them in the Bible. Okay, Enoch would be another example, but when you only have one verse about you in the Bible, then maybe it's hard to list many things. But Daniel really comes out as, as a hero. So I'm just gonna point out uh, a few of these things and we'll try to make an application for today. First of all, the, the faithfulness of Daniel. The story we read, he was determined not to defile himself. Very risky to do this. Remember the man he said this to, you know, he said, I could die if, if you do this. So, um, you know, you just would think if um, you're taken off into captivity, you know, where's God? It could be quite uh, discouraging. It would seem like the, the circumstances uh, could, uh, could work to destroy your faith. But here he is 
you know, just uh, tenaciously wanting to become loyal to God, determined not to give in to those other gods. Um, the, uh, the selfless quality of Daniel. We'll read this story later. But, uh, you know, when Belshazzar later saw the writing on the wall, you know, Daniel was a big, um, you know, very important, powerful man. So they called for Daniel. And uh, the promise here was, well, if you can read it, you'll be dressed in robes of purple, wear a gold chain of honor around your neck, be third in power in the kingdom. And Daniel's response here, keep your gifts for yourself or give them to someone else. And he said, I will read for you what is written and tell you what it means. Um, and uh, this verse just, it had some power for me this week. Um, I'm reading a book that's uh, quite depressing actually, but it's talking about how um, politicians in this country uh, universally, well, not universally, but in, in so many examples, leave Congress or Senate as millionaires and have enriched themselves, uh, Republican and Democrat. So this is not a, I hope, a slanted kind of a thing, but by using insider information, you know, you learn something about something's going to happen to healthcare, well, you invest in that area. Uh, just uh, gross areas of negligence where uh, even a, a Republican Speaker of the House bought some land. And clearly because he knew a freeway was going to be built through there and then sold it for many times uh, what it was worth. Um, that uh, a California congresswoman who's a Democrat, so I'm kind of picking on both sides. It's a danger with politics. You offend half your audience. But, uh, you know, who invested in one company and made 80 times the profit. Again, it has to be because of knowledge of something. And, you know, we'd go to jail for that. But it's, it's not, uh, not illegal for Congress and, and senators to do that. Quite discouraging when you think about people who are public servants, quotes, who, uh, who do things like this. But here we see Daniel kind of in a position as a congressman, a senator, and um, you know, offered here all this wealth and has absolutely no interest in that. Okay, that's something to admire. Okay, the words here, reliable, honest, and blameless. Okay, remember uh, later on here with the Medes and the Persians, they were trying to find some way to trap Daniel. And so these uh, evil men, the supervisors and governors, tried to find something wrong in the way Daniel administered the empire, but they couldn't because Daniel was reliable and did not do anything wrong or dishonest. And they said to each other, well, we're not going to find anything of which to accuse Daniel unless it is something in connection with his religion. And of course, that's what they used, that you can't um, make any requests to other gods. But that's, uh, you know, when your enemies even say that about you, uh, that's pretty remarkable. And just other translations, they couldn't find anything wrong because he was trustworthy, faithful, could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy. He could always be trusted. I think uh, Daniel really is, uh, in many ways, a, a reflection of Jesus. And um, I think, you know, anytime we see someone who is, who is living this way, um, it is because, remember, the Holy Spirit, what is the Holy Spirit doing? Always trying to bring a reflection of who God is to us, ultimately through Jesus. So I would say Daniel, even though Jesus wasn't a historical figure yet, uh, was responding to the person of Jesus and was becoming like him. Okay, and of course, connected to God and exhibiting complete trust in God. His, you know, praying three times a day. Because even when he learned about these orders, he went home in an upstairs room of his house, there were windows, and there, just as he had always done, he knelt down at the open windows and prayed to God three times a day. Again, this is not a, a formula. I mean, I think praying three times a day is, is great. 
Okay, but again, we, let's not make a list out of this, but I think the, the point here again is, and, and for me, this is very important um, personally because uh, very easy for me just to uh, kind of go into a, a little bit of a dreamy state and not to focus on what is actually happening in the here and now. And uh, so to, to be connected to God moment by moment, that does require some communication with God throughout the day. It's not just a once a week kind of a church service thing. Okay, a daily frequent reminder and some, some meaningful interaction, communication with God. Uh, it very much helps me to, to focus and to stay in the here and now so that when I'm sitting with a patient, I'm, I hope, more likely to think about things to say that might be helpful in the moment. And so we see D Daniel here, very connected. And of course, after he was taken out of the lion's den, the king was overjoyed gave orders for Daniel to be pulled out of the pit. So they pulled him up and saw that he had not been hurt at all, for he trusted God. And he absolutely did. Okay, and then finally, the one I'll say just a little bit more about, because I think this is so important and, and important for this audience, especially the subject of humility. You know, when Daniel um, initially interpreted the dream for Nebuchadnezzar, um, this is, I think, uh, just quite remarkable, this attitude. Daniel said, now this mystery was revealed to me not because I am wiser than anyone else. Isn't Daniel always known for his wisdom? And here he would say, not because I'm wiser than anyone else, but so that your majesty may learn the meaning of your dream and understand the thoughts that have come to you. Um, I think that's quite remarkable. He could have taken credit for this. Okay, but uh, again, he deflects all of that credit. Okay, but even more remarkable here, the prayer in Daniel 9. We, we have to talk about this because Daniel's prayer, this is what unleashed this conflict. And we have all these angelic beings that seem to come into play because of this prayer. But just notice, all, we've said there are only good things to say about Daniel. But yet notice his prayer. We have sinned. We have been evil. We have done wrong. We have rejected what you commanded us to do and have turned away from what you showed us was right. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. You are merciful and forgiving, although we have rebelled against you. I mean, he lumps himself in with all of the rebellion of the people, cumulatively, that have come up to this time. We did not listen to you, O Lord our God, when you told us to live according to the laws which you gave us. We sinned against you. But even now, our Lord, our God, we have not tried to please you by turning from our sins or by following your truth. We did not listen to you. We have sinned. We've done wrong. We are praying to you because you are merciful, not because we have done right. I just find it remarkable here that, um, you know, he just kind of corporately he identifies himself with the problem, with the rebellion. And I think I would see that also as a, as a very humble um, action on Daniel's part. And the reason I say uh, here for, for this audience is, you know, physicians you know, have reputations. And physicians are often known as being rather arrogant. Okay, not always. Some are very service-oriented. Okay, but, you know, you're, you're going into a position, it doesn't seem like it right now because everyone's telling you what to do and when you get on the wards, you'll be, you know, uh, be doing lots of work for residents and interns that are over you, but eventually, you know, you will come into a position where you will have a clinic, you will be having people that work under you, and it just becomes uh, very easy to slip into uh, very much a, a me, my, me, myself, and I um, kind of a lifestyle. 
But again, I said Daniel is a reflection of Jesus. Okay, do we incorporate this into our picture of God? Jesus would say of himself, I am meek and humble of heart. Okay, Jesus, was he really God in human form? Uh, if that's true, can we even incorporate uh, humility into the character of God? Who's probably the greatest hero in the Old Testament? Moses. Okay, and we read in Numbers 12, who wrote Numbers, but that Moses was a very humble man. Okay, more humble than anyone else on earth. Okay, interesting. But um, humility, you know, this was not something um, to boast about in that time. It was looked down on. Okay, here Moses, the leader, the great leader, was the most humble man. Okay, and Jesus' first sermon, you know, everyone gets together, Sermon on the Mount, this is it. He's going to lay out the platform of his kingdom. Blessed are those who are humble. They will receive what God has promised. Okay, we go on and on about humility, but uh, it's uh, the Holy Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, and self-control. Okay, um, so we, we have this, I think, very much held out as an ideal and uh, so just to see that in Daniel is something uh, worth talking about. So I would just, as a summary here about biblical humility, I would say is where the good of others is placed over that of the individual. And in Daniel's case, what we see so often is that God's good is put over his own self-interest. Self is put down and the interests of others, the interests of God's kingdom um, are elevated. And so the opposite of humility are attempts to better oneself at the expense of others. We prey on others. We rise up and assume power uh, to control over others. Okay, and that's, again, the example of, of what we see here uh, in those examples I gave with the, the people in, uh, some people in Congress and Senate. Very much tied in, of course, with pride and selfishness. Uh, what's the key characteristic of the adversary through the Bible? It's always, you know, pride, selfishness. So we have kind of these, these polar uh, contrasting um, qualities. <clears throat> I love this C.S. Lewis quote on pride and humility. And he would say, the pride which has been, uh, it is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Okay. So um, I think he has it right on. Now, I've never actually watched this show, so maybe you have, Dr. House. So I was told that he kind of epitomizes the arrogant doctor. Maybe that's wrong, I don't know, but that's just what someone told me, so I found the picture there. But, um, you know, um, again, as, as uh, physicians, um, you just have to be uh, aware of this, how easy it is as you have power and as you are giving orders to other people. Uh, that uh, to, to slip into um, arrogance and where even the service, it's still primarily about you. You operate on someone and it's primarily about feeding how you feel about yourself. You are very much over um, everything else. And uh, I put this picture here just to remind me, this happened so long ago as a third year medical student that I, I can probably tell it, but a, um, a surgeon that I worked with just had the reputation. He went to Johns Hopkins. And so everyone said, well, all you have to do is ask him about Johns Hopkins and just ask him about himself. And if, he, if you allow him to talk about himself and how great he is, he'll give you a great evaluation. 
just, just needs to you know, feed how he's uh, feeling about himself and how he's doing. And so, anyway, I don't mean to pick on that individual, but even the, even the service that we can do as physicians, it, it can easily be twisted in a way that it's really not about the patient, it's really about me. Here's a physician who I think would epitomize uh, something that is much more in the direction of the ide ideal, Albert, Albert Schweitzer, if any of you know his story. And he would say, I don't know what your destiny will be, but one thing I do know, the only ones among you who will be really happy are those who have sought and found how to serve. Because again, when you serve, you are putting the interests of others above your own interest. And this goes hand in hand, I think, with humility. So I think we can't uh, leave out here that when God's kingdom, in Daniel and in the three friends also, when it's really lived out, um, it has spectacular results. It has an impact on the world. And uh, so just the, the three kings, Nebuchadnezzar, um, well, Darius, and then Cyrus, to think that, that these important people were influenced. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar, after Daniel interpreted the vision, your God is the greatest of all gods, the Lord over kings, and the one who reveals mysteries. Okay, that even Nebuchadnezzar would be influenced by this. Okay, and uh, later on, uh, well, this was actually after he tried to put the three men in the fiery furnace. He said, praise the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued these men who serve and trust him. They disobeyed my orders and risked their lives rather than bow down and worship any God except their own. And now I command that if anyone of any nation, race, or language speaks disrespectfully of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he's to be torn limb from limb. So he didn't quite have the coercion aspect of the message down. But still, you know, that he could be so moved by what these three men did. Okay, and then finally, remember, he went crazy. Okay, but then when he came back, now finally he's humble. He's no longer, it wants to tear people limb from limb. And he says, and now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, honor, and glorify the king of heaven. Everything he does is right and just. He can humble anyone who acts proudly. And just think, these are the last words of Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar would seem to have been, you know, won over to God through Daniel, through Daniel's three friends. Okay, and then uh, skipping here to uh, uh, Daniel 6, where King Darius wrote to all the people, Greetings, I command that throughout my empire everyone should fear and respect Daniel's God. He's a living God, and he will rule forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. His power will never come to an end. He saves and rescues. He performs wonders and miracles in heaven and earth. He saved Daniel from being killed by the lions. And Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus. And of course, he had a significant impact on Cyrus as well. So the, the results of, of really, I think, radically living out the, the Jesus kind of a kingdom, and I see Daniel being a reflection of Jesus, is a, a remarkable impact in the world. So the question for us is, what does it look like today? You know, we live in a, quotes Christian nation. Everything is Christian. Daniel lived in a pagan nation. What does it look like? Uh, what would it look like today? And um, I'm going to just leave this as something for you to think about, but I'll give you just one example of someone that I think uh, really lived out um, this kind of a, of a principle, and that's uh, Martin Luther King. And, you know, we, we see all these uh, opposition marches and things uh, going on in the news, but uh, when they marched with Martin Luther King and the people all gathered together, um, he told them, you know, if you have hatred in your heart, towards these people that we're marching against, go home, okay? And you will, we are going to love our enemies even as we protest the injustice 
that is going on in the world. Okay, that's Christ-like, that you even try to win over your enemy as you're trying to seek the, uh, to correct the injustice. Okay, that's, that's radically different. That's, that's a Christ-like way of doing it. And uh, just a, a quote of his on this. And he would say, do to us what you will, and we will still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory to even do the things, not with the purpose of defeating your enemy, but to try to win your enemy. That's, that's Jesus Christ. Okay, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for the example of Daniel um, and, uh, of course, your life on earth. Help us to better understand your kingdom, to better understand your character, and give us the strength and courage to reflect that in our own lives. Amen. <clears throat>